Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch in Pisidia, north of Cyprus. If you look at the northwest corner of the map, you can see it up there, Antioch. John Mark had left them, and Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue where Paul begins to preach. And Paul recounts for them some Jewish history to his mostly Jewish audience. In the section that we looked at last week, that history demonstrated the faithfulness of God culminating in the coming of Christ. And so Paul was seeing how God had moved, and he he used certain verbs like God chose the fathers, God made his people, God led them out of Egypt, God put up with the rebellion of his people, God gave them land, gave them judges, gave them Saul, raised up David, and God brought to Israel a savior. The history of Israel shines a laser beam on Christ. And that brings us to our section of Paul's sermon that keeps the attention on Jesus. Let's all stand as we take a look at it today. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up from him, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So we certainly know the audience that is being addressed. They are Jews. Paul calls them brothers. He's in a synagogue and says, sons of the family of Abraham. Then he says, those who fear God. This refers to apparently Gentiles that were there who had either converted to Judaism or were considering that. They were interested in Judaism. Then he says, us, meaning both groups, keenly interested in God's work throughout history. It is through the Jews that God would work in sending a Messiah that would be the source of their salvation. There's a parallel passage to this 
in 1 Peter that also speaks of the Old Testament and draws a line to Christ. This is what it says in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Angels peering through the window of history, gazing at this salvation, at this Jesus, offered to Jew and Gentile, they're amazed. The Old Testament writers wrote about Christ and in doing so, gave these believers in Asia Minor, Peter's original audience, clarity about the Christ who was woven, again, throughout the Old Testament. They would know because of the promises, the fulfilled prophecies, the ministry of Christ, his miracles, that this salvation had a divine origin. It was sent from heaven. Is it not possible that we can be so familiar with our salvation and all that surrounds it that we fail to appreciate the glory that God has wrought? I think it is. He has promised Christ through thousands of years of history. Did you know that the lineage of Christ, the nature of his virgin birth, the place of his birth, his sinless ministry, his sacrifice on the cross, what he would teach, the place of his ministry, his miracles, his rejection, his riding on a donkey to be received as a Messiah, his betrayal, his garments being sold for 30 pieces of silver, his crucifixion, including his hands and feet being pierced, his thirst being quenched with vinegar, his blood being spilled, his resurrection are all promised in the pages of the Old Testament. Over 300 prophecies about Christ are given in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Who could do that but God? Sent from heaven, admired by angels, fulfilled promises. Hundreds of years, thousands of years before, they demonstrate this salvation spoken about in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ. This indeed is not of human origin. That's why it pains me when I hear supposed spiritual leaders denigrating the Old Testament. If you want to get my blood to boil, do that in my presence. This past week, I heard some others do it. It was not in my presence. I just heard it, listened to it. Claiming the name of Christ, 
but denigrating the Old Testament, stripping thousands of years of history that point to the salvation from heaven. I would be careful what I denigrate. I would be careful about putting myself in a position of judgment over what God has called holy. Listen, honest questions, of course those are welcome. But when we get to a point where we've made a decision that the Old Testament is outdated and we don't need it today because we have progressed so much scientifically, that is nothing but human arrogance. Unfortunately, they are not alone. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. The Jewish people and the religious leaders failed to take into account all that had been written in the Old Testament about Jesus. They read these passages every time they came together in the synagogue. And the irony is that in their rejection of Jesus, they were fulfilling the prophecies that they were reading about every week. And they didn't even know it. The prophets said that Christ would be rejected. They said this in the Old Testament. And it was the religious leaders and the Jews who did the rejecting. Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The prophet said that Christ would be put on a cross and laid in a tomb. And again, the Jews who participated in the scheme unwittingly became a part of this promise. They thought that they were getting rid of this problem, Jesus. They were, in fact, fulfilling the prophecies every week that they read on the Sabbath. The very ones who should have understood that Jesus was the Messiah were rejecting him. And as Paul points out, they could not execute anyone on their own without the approval of Rome. But without a single finding legally, they made a formal request, the Jews did, to Pilate to have Jesus executed. And the fact is that the Jewish leaders could never have forced Pilate to kill Jesus without the support of the people. And so here the people and the leaders were complicit in the death of Jesus. And Pilate acquiesced to the Jewish leaders in the crowd. And when Christ was killed, another Jew, Joseph of Arimathea, offered up a tomb for him to be buried in. Verses 28 and 29 verify that he indeed was executed. He was buried, and now Paul turns to the resurrection. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, 
who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The people and the rulers thought that they got away with cursing Jesus on a cross. And verse 30 provides what we might call a a sovereign chord, a sovereign word, but God, but God. God intervened in the most miraculous of ways by raising Jesus from the dead that they had condemned. But God, couldn't that be said about a lot of circumstances? You may think that these negative things you're going through, that that's the final word. But God, don't forget that whatever circumstances you are in, there is a but God, always in place. You may not be aware, but it does not change the fact that there's a sovereign God still working. Remember the words of Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God raising Jesus from the dead emphatically demonstrated the divine nature of salvation in Christ. Colossians 2.12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, which you also were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What God promised through the prophets is fulfilled in Christ. And that is confirmed by the resurrection. And the resurrection was witnessed by the apostles. It was witnessed by hundreds of people. Unlike many, you know, so-called miracles today that you can never verify or, you know, some guy gets some vision in his closet that nobody else can see or verify. Here, hundreds of people see a guy who died on a cross, was buried three days, and now he's walking around. Witness to the resurrection. The whole work of Christ was done among the Jews. And that is who Paul is trying to win over in this message so that they can now partake of salvation. This would be a, a, a present result of all of this history that he's giving. God has done this through you, our forefathers, their sons. And now he's offering to you the salvation. Notice he says, all these things were fulfilled to us in verse 33. Psalm 2-7 celebrated the promise made to David about an eternal dynasty, a promise that was repeated regularly within the synagogues, in the temple worship, in the hope of an ultimate king, of a Messiah. Now, we know what they thought. We know that they thought of a, a, a physical king that would deliver them from Rome. But the passage said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul recites this psalm to again show the lofty position of the son. By the way, he's not negating 
the preexistence of Christ in this. He's just showing the lofty position that God has for his son. Paul has masterfully established the historical, factual, and divine origin of the gospel in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he does it again. He repeats the same theme in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in according to the scriptures. It is indeed refreshing to remind ourselves of the gospel and to remind ourselves of what it is not. That's why when I read this week of something that waved Nunley in his commentary on Acts said this, it's an excellent reminder, I quote, now that the essence core foundation of the gospel has been clearly defined, it may be helpful to clearly state some of the things that are by process of elimination, not the essence of the gospel, the power of positive thinking, prosperity, positive confession, commanding angels, the authority of the believer, dream interpretation, power with God in prayer, inner healing, self-improvement, self-realization, self-actualization, self-esteem. That's a lot of selves. Spiritual warfare, signs and wonders, the manifest presence of God or God showing up, apostles, prophets, deliverance, shepherding, or impartation. Some of these emphases with which the church has flirted are actually of some value. None, however, can take the central place of the cross, tomb, and resurrection, and it still be called biblical Christianity. None provide for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. Nothing else can truly be labeled good news. God cannot fully honor the person, ministry, or movement which makes anything other than the cross of Christ the focus of the message. May we, as his representatives today, proclaim with the same regularity seen in the preaching of the apostles this message which is closest to the heart of God. That'll preach. That's a good word. Paul now adds an exclamation to the risen Christ. He was given a body fit for eternity, and he fulfilled what was written about David. As for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he was spoken in this way. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom, whom God raised up did not see corruption. God promises David that he would give a descendant an eternal throne, a kingdom that would last forever. That was written about in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 16. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We add to that Psalm 1610 that says, God's holy one will not see corruption, speaking of the body. We also read in Isaiah 55, 3, incline your ear, come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. These are what Paul calls holy and sure blessings of David. They're to be fulfilled through the line of David's descendants. But they don't specifically refer to David as being the fulfillment. Why? Because David died. Because his body is decaying. Only by virtue of the resurrection were the promises of David fulfilled. Jesus is God's holy one who saw no decay. He's the one who received the sure and holy promises to David. He's the son of God whose throne is forever. Listen, just reason your way to this. If the Messiah was to undergo an atoning death for the sins of people, but also is to reign forever, a resurrection had to occur. In their book, The Genesis of Liberation, scholars Emerson Powery and Rodney Sadler Jr. explore what they call the miracle of so many African Americans coming to Christ during the time of slavery. In the face of their horrible oppression, many fell in love with the God of Scripture. In Christ, they found salvation from their sins and reconciliation. The the authors write that in the Bible, they found not just an otherworldly God offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God who cared principally for the oppressed, acting to deliver the downtrodden from their abusers. They also found Jesus, a suffering Savior whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. And in particular, the glory and hope of the resurrection. This is where they found hope. When Paul writes of the resurrection In Acts, he reaches back in history, but it's not just a lesson of antiquity. It is also to give us something that we can hold on to in the here and now. It's to provide us hope. It's to show us that there is a a security, a rock upon which our faith rests. And that is the facts and history, and promises of God, all fulfilled in Christ. The publicist for the late author and debater, Christopher Hitchens, asked a Christian author by the name of Larry Towton to arrange a series of debates between Hitchens, who was an outspoken atheist, and other Christian thinkers around, uh, they would do these debates in America. Over the ensuing years, Hitchens and Towton developed an unlikely friendship. Hitchens stayed at Towton's home, and they actually took two very long road trips across America together. 
and Hitchens would stay in, at Towton's house. And prior to Hitchens' death from cancer, they had an encounter in one of these road trips. Towton describes what happened and says this. My mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear. The autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun. And the road ahead of us is open. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, mind you, Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, reading from the Gospel of John. Reaching the 25th and 26th verses, his face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too, he says. I did not recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a great verse, I add, sensing that we've reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, Christopher says. And then taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and asks, Do you believe us thou this, Larry Towton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believe us thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever response, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. When someone speaks of the most significant event in human history upon which the souls of men are determined, and they say, it is not without appeal, I'm suggesting that's not going far enough. My friends, hopefully we can recapture the glory of our salvation, the the historical, factual basis of the resurrection and of the life of Christ. And I hope that our hearts can soar in worship. And I hope that our lives can be given to the true Messiah in appreciation for his sacrifice, and that we lay our lives down, that we submit to his lordship in every area of our life, how can we do any less? Let's pray.